This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 10, Chapter 5, Part 2 Some American Cities on the top of a hill on one side of the town stood the first monument raised after the revolution to Washington. Beyond it was a new monument saluting in the name of Lafayette the American soldiers who fell fighting in France in the Great War. Between them were steps and stone seats, and I sat down on one of them and talked to two children who were clambering about on the bases of the monument. I felt a profound and radiant peace in the thought that they, at any rate, were not going to my lecture. It made me happy that in the talk neither they nor I had any names. I was full of that indescribable waking vision of the strangeness of life, and especially of the strangeness of locality, of how we find places and lose them, and see faces for a moment in a far-off land. And it is equally mysterious if we remember, and mysterious if we forget. I had even, stirring in my head, the suggestion of some verses that I shall never finish. If I go back to Baltimore, the city of Maryland. But the bone would have to contain far too much, for I was thinking of a thousand things at once, and wondering what the children would be like twenty years after, and whether they would travel in white goods or be interested in oil. And I was not touched, it may be said, by the fact that a neighboring shop had provided the only sample of the substance called tea ever found on the American continent and in front of me soared up into the sky on wings of stone the column of all those high hopes of humanity a hundred years ago and beyond there were lighted candles in the chapel and prayers in the antechambers where perhaps already a prince of the church was dying only on a later page can i even attempt to comb out such a tangle of contrasts which is indeed the tangle of america and this mortal life but sitting there on that stone seat, under that quiet sky, I had some experience of the thronging thousands of living thoughts and things, noisy and numberless as birds, that give its everlasting vivacity and vitality to a dead town. Two other cities I visited which have this particular type of traditional character, the one being typical of the north and the other of the south. At least I may take as convenient anti-types the towns of Boston and St. Louis, and we might add Nashville as being a shade more truly southern than St. Louis. To the extreme south, in the sense of what is called the Black Belt, I never went at all. Now English travelers expect the south to be somewhat traditional, but they are not prepared for the aspects of Boston in the north, which are even more so. If we wished only for an antic of antithesis, we might say that on one side the places are more prosaic than the names, and on the other the names are more prosaic than the places. St. Louis is a fine town, and we recognize a fine instinct of the imagination that set on the hill overlooking the river the statue of that holy horseman who has christened the city. But the city is not as beautiful as its name. It could not be. Indeed, these titles set up a standard to which the most splendid spires and turrets could not rise. 
and below which the commercial chimneys and sky signs conspicuously sink. We should think it odd if Belfast had borne the name of Joan of Arc. We should be slightly shocked if the town of Johannesburg happened to be called Jesus Christ. But few have noticed a blasphemy or even a somewhat challenging benediction to be found in the very name of San Francisco. But on the other hand, a place like Boston is much more beautiful than its name, and as I have suggested, an Englishman's general information, or lack of information, leaves him in some ignorance of the type of beauty that turns up in that type of place. He has heard so much about the purely commercial north as against the agricultural and aristocratic south, and the traditions of Boston and Philadelphia are rather too tenuous and delicate to be seen from across the Atlantic. But here also there are traditions, and a great deal of traditionalism. The circle of old families, which still meets with a certain exclusiveness in Philadelphia, is the sort of thing that we in England should expect to find rather in New Orleans. The academic aristocracy of Boston, which Oliver Wendell Holmes called the Brahmins, is still a reality, though it was always a minority, and is now a very small minority. An epigram invented by Yale at the expense of Harvard describes it as very small indeed. Here is to jolly old Boston, the home of the bean and the cod, where Cabots speak only to Lowell's, and Lowell's speak only to God. But an aristocracy must be a minority, and it is arguable that the smaller it is, the better. I am bound to say, however, that the distinguished Dr. Cabot, the present representative of the family, broke through any taboo that may tie his affections to his creator and to Miss Amy Lowell, and broadened his sympathy so indiscriminately as to show kindness and hospitality to so lost a being as an English lecturer. But if the thing is hardly a limit, it is very living as a memory, and Boston on this side is very much a place of memories. It would be paying at a very poor compliment merely to say that parts of it reminded me of England, for indeed they reminded me of English things that have largely vanished from England. There are old brown houses in the corners of squares and streets that are like glimpses of a man's forgotten childhood. And when I saw the long path with posts, where the autocrat may supposed to have walked with the schoolmistress, I felt I had come to the land where old tales come true. I pause in this place upon this particular aspect of America because it is very much missed in a mere contrast with England. I need not say that if I felt even about the slight figures of fiction, I felt it even more about solid figures of history. Such ghosts seemed particularly solid in the southern states, precisely because of the comparative quietude and leisure of the atmosphere of the south. It was never more vivid to me than when coming in at a quiet hour of the night into the comparatively quiet hotel at Nashville in Tennessee and mounting to a dim and deserted upper floor where I found myself before a faded picture, and from the dark canvas looked forth the face of Andrew Jackson, watchful like a white eagle. At that moment, perhaps, I was in more than one sense alone. Most Englishmen know a good deal of American fiction and nothing whatever of American history. They know more about the autocrat of the breakfast table than about the autocrat of the army, and the people, the one great democratic despot of modern times, the Napoleon of the New World. 
The only notion the English public ever got about American politics they got from a novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And to say the least of it, it was no exception to the prevalence of fiction over fact. Hundreds of us have heard of Tom Sawyer, for one who has heard of Charles Sumner, and it is probable that most of us could pass a more detailed examination about Toddy and Budge than about Lincoln and Lee. But in the case of Andrew Jackson it may be that I felt a special sense of individual isolation, for I believe that there are even fewer among Englishmen than among Americans who realize that the energy of that great man was largely directed toward saving us from the chief evil which destroys the nations today. He sought to cut down, as with a sword of simplicity, the new and nameless enormity of finance, and he must have known, as by a lightning flash, that the people were behind him, because all the politicians were against him. The end of that struggle is not yet, but if the bank is stronger than the sword or the scepter of popular sovereignty, the end will be the end of democracy. It will have to choose between accepting an acknowledged dictator and accepting dictation which it dare not acknowledge. The process will have begun by giving power to people and refusing to give them their titles, and it will have ended by giving the power to the people who refuse to give us their names. But I have a special reason for ending this chapter on the name of the great popular dictator who made war on the politicians and the financiers. This chapter does not profess to touch on one in twenty of the interesting cities of America, even in this particular aspect of their relation to the history of America, which is so much neglected in England. If that were so, there would be a great deal to say even about the newest of them. Chicago, for instance, is certainly something more than the mere pork-packing yard that English tradition suggests, and it has been building a boulevard not unworthy of its splendid position on its splendid lake. But all these cities are defiled, and even diseased, with industrialism. It is due to the Americans to remember that they have deliberately preserved one of their cities from such defilement and such disease, and that is the presidential city which stands on the American mind for the same ideal as the president. The idea of the republic that rises above modern money-getting and endures. There has really been an effort to keep the White House white. No factories are allowed in that town, no more than the necessary shops are tolerated. It is a beautiful city and really retains something of that classical serenity of the 18th century in which the fathers of the republic moved. With all respect to the colonial place of that name, I do not suppose that Wellington is particularly like Wellington, but Washington really is like Washington. In this, as in so many things, there is no harm in our criticizing foreigners, if only we would also criticize ourselves. In other words, the world might need even less of its new charity if it had a little more of the old humility. When we complain of American individualism, we forget that we have fostered it by ourselves having far less of this impersonal ideal of the republic or commonwealth as a whole. When we complain, very justly for instance, of great pictures passing into the possession of American magnets, we ought to remember that we paved the way for it 
by allowing them all to accumulate in the possession of English magnets. It is bad that a public treasure should be in the possession of a private man in America. But we took the first step in lightly letting it disappear into the private collection of a man in England. I know all about the genuine national tradition which treated the aristocracy as constituting the state. But these very foreign purchases go to prove that we ought to have had a state independent of the aristocracy. It is true that rich Americans do sometimes covet the monuments of our culture in a fashion that rightly revolts us as vulgar and irrational. They are said sometimes to want to take whole buildings away with them, and too many of such buildings are private and for sale. There were wilder stories of a millionaire wishing to transplant Glastonbury Abbey and similar buildings as if they were portable shrubs in pots. It is obvious that it is nonsense as well as vandalism to separate Glastonbury Abbey from Glastonbury. I can understand a man venerating it as a ruin, and I can understand a man despising it as a rubbish heap, but it is senseless to insult a thing in order to idolize it. It is meaningless to desecrate the shrine in order to worship the stones. That sort of thing is the bad side of American appetite and ambition, and we are perfectly right to see it not only as a deliberate blasphemy, but as an unconscious buffoonery. But there is another side to the American tradition, which is really too much lacking in our own tradition, and it is illustrated in this idea of preserving Washington as a sort of paradise of impersonal politics without personal commerce. Nobody could buy the White House or the Washington Monument. It may be hinted, as by an inhabitant of Glastonbury, that nobody wants to, but nobody could if he did want to. There is really a certain air of serenity and security about the place, lacking in every other American town. It is increased, of course, by the clear blue skies of that half-southern province from which smoke has been banished. The effect is not so much in the mere buildings, though they are classical and often beautiful, but whatever else they have built, they have built a great blue dome, the largest dome in the world, and the place does express something in the inconsistent idealism of this strange people. And here at least they have lifted it higher than all the skyscrapers and set it in a stainless sky. The end of section 10. The end of chapter 5.